Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. Writers are notoriously terrible party guests. They sulk in the corner, don't talk to anyone, and spend all their time ruminating on existential dread. What's that all about? In this discussion, panelists Travis Heerman, Sarah Shantz, Emily Rapp, and Kim Adonisio will explore just what is so attractive about dark material. Thank you for coming, everyone. My name is Travis Heerman. I'm a local writer. Uh, I've got, uh, well, my... Uh, six published novels coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, I primarily write, uh, well, I primarily uh, historical fantasy at this point, but I've touched every genre at this point. Um, uh, but what we're going to ha- do first is we're going to go down the line and have our illustrious uh, panelists introduce themselves. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, then we'll get into, oh, by the way, um, I think the only thing that could make you know, a panel about the essence of darkness be more, be better would be some thunder and lightning, because uh, we got we got rain right. So uh, and maybe some screams out in the parking lot. All right. So anyway, we'll start here. Hi. Um. Can you guys hear me? So my name is Sarah Elizabeth Schantz. Um. I'm a local writer. I grew up in a bookstore, literally in Boulder. I'm one of the first mystery bookstores in the country, The Room Morgue. Um, I do not write mysteries, so sorry. Um, That was my form of rebellion. My (laughs) first book just came out from Simon & Schuster in April. It's available for sale. It's called Fig. Um, It's about a girl growing up under the shadow of her mother's schizophrenia in rural Kansas set in the 1980s and 1990s. So... It's pretty dark. Um, I think, too, that a power outage would make it pretty dark as well. Electric chair. It's probably going to happen when I'm talking. Great. Uh, My name is Emily. Can everyone hear me? Is this on? Hello? I think it's the same. Hello? It's fine. Everyone can hear me, right? Okay. My name is Emily Rapp Black. I added a name to my name. Um, And I grew up in a church... I know, which is pretty dark. Um, and although it was a Protestant church, so it could have been it's a little bit lighter. And I write nonfiction and fiction. And um, I live in Palm Springs, so I am happy about the rain. Bring on the darkness. Over okay. to you. Okay, I'm Kim Adonizio, and um, I'm a spawn of Satan. Not really, but I kind of like how that sounds, you know, spawn of Satan. Whoops, there goes my... Yeah, and I'm... So I was trying to figure out whether we're getting closer to the light or the dark with the rain. But, um, yeah, I write in about six genres at this point, although I haven't tried fantasy yet. <laughs> I just keep, like, jumping from genre to genre. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know what else to say. I'm really enjoying this wine and these chips. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I think let's let's get dark. All right, well, let's get into it then. All right yeah. then. Um, okay, so uh, I had prepared a few questions uh, f- uh, for these ladies in advance, and uh, I've got some other things I'm sort of holding in, re- in reserve if we've got time, and but we're also going to open it up to uh, Q and A a little bit later on. So if you've got some, 
you know, if something sparks for you, you know, take note and, and we'll try to answer your questions a little bit later. Okay. Uh, all right. So uh, first, um, okay. So why do we do it? Right. I mean, we, the, you know, horror, noir, dark fantasy, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever sort of genre your particular S, your particular brand fits in. Um, why don't we, why don't we write about puppies and unicorns and, 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 and stuff like that? Um, are we just creepy? Um, uh, what 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 drives like you? What drives you to sort of to dig in the corners and look under rocks? We'll we'll start with well, with Kim down in the end. Oh, you start with me. Okay, yes, I'm well, going to mix it up. You never you're not, you're not going to know where it's coming. I, from. I have my notes here just in case. I have words like shadow and duende and hero's journey, Lorca, the blues. I have all kinds of things to talk about, but I'm I'm at a loss when you ask me that question. What makes us do it? Yeah, why do we do it? Um, why do we gravitate? Why why do we gravitate to? Why are we that so kind of fucked up and depressed and you know? I no seriously though, I think that's kind of part of the writer's vocation, avocation. I think we just want to look at the world and see what is. And uh, you know, I think the world is a great darkness, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> so I try to write about what I see. And I don't think you can actually talk about darkness without talking about light, which I know we'll get to mm-hmm. very shortly. So, um, But I think, um, you know, I guess for myself, it's just being drawn to sort of try to see life clearly. And uh, a big part of that, a big part of what I see is the darkness. So I think that, you know, um, writers have talked about this forever, and starting with the Bible, <laughs> um, or maybe before the Bible, I don't know. But, you know, I think that's just, it's, it's just what life is. So I think that's why writers are drawn toward that. And if you're not, then you're probably the Kardashians or something. <laughs> okay. Yep, you're next. I don't like puppies or unicorns. <laughs> they suck. Why not? I don't know. Um, no, that's not true. Um, <laughs> honestly, I, I have a friend who has says, like, the world is a bucket of shit. That's his, like, sort of tagline. Um, it kind of is at, at some points, um, but I think I think part of the role of a writer is to to look at things that are difficult and not just turn away from them, and, and and that's something. I mean, as someone who writes a lot of nonfiction, I unfortunately have had a lot of experiences that have lent themselves to dark places. So, it's difficult things happen. Um, you can either sort of lie down and take it, or you can try to make meaning out of it. And for me, it's a lot of sort of rebellion of saying like okay fine if you gave me this difficult situation or this difficult deck of cards or whatever then I'm going to try to make meaning out of it as a way of kicking back against the unfairness of chaos right you know um, so yeah I mean I just think it's think things that are like those horrible sympathy cards you know with the birds that flutter into the sunset I actually think those are like offensive because they're simplifying um deep profound experiences into like something you could write like a, a third grader or younger would put in a sketchbook i mean come on so i don't know i feel like i think what kim said too like you can't address darkness without addressing lightness as well so it kind of they they, they feed off each other in some sense yeah okay sarah Well, one of the first things that I thought about when you were listing the different genres, horror, noir, et cetera, mystery, um, 
I tend to write realism, and I find that there is a lot of darkness in the realism. I also have touches of magical realism to my writing, um, where where weird things happen, like Barbie talks to the main character while she's crucifying her. Um, I think what I'm interested in is sort of like the dark recesses of, of our imagination, um, the fertility of thought. I mean, that's a dark place, right? Gestation takes place in the darkness. It requires that level of darkness um, before the sun comes to some extent. So it's a very transitional space, I think, darkness. Um, when I was pregnant, I was terrified of transition. Like, I kept reading about it in all the pregnancy books, and, you know, that's when women give up and start swearing and asking for drugs and et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought for sure I was going to melt down during transition. Um, I ended up, my midwife gave me some homeopathic dose of skullcap. That's dark, too, skullcap. Um <laughs> And I ended up sleeping, and I was sleeping next to my husband, and he was asleep, and I was stealing his sleep. And when I woke up, the midwives thought that they were going to have to go home. Um, They thought that the labor was just not getting anywhere. I had gone through transition. I had slept through transition. So there is also a certain amount of rest and calm within the dark as well. You know, it's hard to sleep when the lights are on. Um, And then as far as puppies and unicorns, you know, they're boring. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's why we don't really... I mean, they can feature, but then, you know, the puppy becomes Cujo. And, and, and who doesn't like the villain better than the better than the protagonist most of the time anyway? Or at least the villain is more interesting. Uh, I think you, I, I hear that often. Um, I, w- one of the things that uh, that Kim said uh, struck me. Uh, it reminded me of a quote that I heard. Uh, and I, the name of the author escapes me now, but uh, uh, he's a horror writer. He said that uh, reading and writing the darkness is about eating my own shadow so that it doesn't eat me. Um, so you know. Writing is therapy. Uh, you know, writing is um, uh, dealing with your own demons, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and one of the things that you've all touched on is that with, without it, the puppies, and the, the puppies and the unicorns are for the end. They're for the happy ending. Or they're for the very beginning when the puppy dies. Or the puppy turn in, turns into Cujo. And so that um, they're, the, they're the, the ends through which the passage of darkness you know goes through right you've got the beginning and the end and then you've got the passage which which is and it, and if there's no darkness in a book it's i don't know is it is there any conflict at all really um kim yeah i i would just wanted to i just wanted to put another slant onto the beginning and the end thing cuz i think they're actually along the way I think I, Tony Morrison said you have to engineer moments of lightness mm-hmm. in a dark work, and I, so the puppies. Since we're using the puppies, um, <laughs> we're adopting a lot of puppies tonight. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think that that's one of the moments of lightness, and I think the issue is not whether you have it or whether it turns into Cujo. <laughs> I think I think it's how you use it and recognizing that that's not all that's in life but that is in fact one of the things that makes life bearable pleasurable ideally if you get to that point beyond just bearable Mm -hmm. you know I mean I think that's something all along the way it's those moments of solace it's those moments that we have and you know saying that that's the be all and end all of it is 
is the error that the people with the sympathy cards make, mm-hmm. right? You know, is saying that that's, that's what life is. Um, but I don't want to throw out the puppies. You know, I, I want one. I want one of those little <laughs> itty dogs that I can take with me everywhere. I would have it with me right now if I could. Yes, I want one of those little Paris Hilton itty dogs that will love me and travel with me, you know. But, but I, I, mean, I mean, just to your point, you know, I, I'm not sure if I, beginnings and endings is, is as much what it is as sort of threading through so that we have both things happening in some kind of, opposition or balance or relationship mm-hmm. sure yeah um the, and while while we've been on this topic another another one occurred to me um there's a there's a short story uh by ursula Le Guin uh called the ones who walk away from omelas uh have any of you read that um and a, a very dark story about a very happy place um, it's. I'll give it to you in a nutshell. It's about it's about a city named Omalas that, uh, you know, where everything is beautiful and peaceful, and everybody's partying all the time. They're you know they're they're having festivals and they're doing drugs and they're just they're just living it up. Um, but and and while she's describing this city, um, she keeps asking the question to the reader directly: Do you believe this? Uh, I mean, is is this believable to you? Is this is something is this ring true? Um, and then she reveals that there's a, like a, a a spell or an enchantment or something that keeps the city going, in that there is a uh, disabled child hidden in a cellar in the basement, um, and everybody in the city has to know they are told that that child is there. And everybody is taken to the child so that they can see it. No one is allowed to be kind to it or give it food. It sits there in its own feces, uh, eating gruel. uh, And then, but if if anyone ever helps that child, the entire city comes crumbling down, right? Uh, And and then she's and once that's revealed, she says, "Now do you believe it?" Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So this sort of expectation of. You know, is all the are all the puppies and unicorns too good to be true, right? So I kind of I think one of the things that that people who write dark stuff do is sort of peel that mask of niceness off of everyday life and and look what's really under there, right? Um, I don't know. Do you guys have anything to? Well, the word sacrifice and scapegoat, actually, those two things came up when you were talking about that particular short story and what the role of both scapegoat and sacrifice play into narrative of any kind, especially with the shadow self and and this idea that we are slaying our demons. And my job as a writer, when I tell you about myself or about one of my characters, hopefully I'm also telling you about you, right? And so hopefully my shadow is connecting with your shadow self. And I think that, you know, if you look at the archetypes, if you look at fairy tales, which I'm absolutely obsessed with, you know, there is always a darkness. And the darkness is the catalyst. It's from which the journey begins and it can go into the darkness and thread through the light and and vice versa but without that catalyst there is no story and without the story there is no growth yes I think you nailed it right there Um, um, okay so so when we're writing about dark stuff um, the question then uh, goes to 
how do you know how far to go? I mean, horror, they, all the, all those, all those kinds of genres, uh, they push the reader beyond, you know, the mundane beyond the everyday, um, unless you're writing about everyday horrors of which there are plenty. Um, uh, how do you know how far to go? Uh, what do you put in there? You're looking at me? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I was Thanks just, for volunteering. Okay. <laughs> just kind of staring at me. So I'm like, okay. Which is fine. You can stare at me. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I don't, I don't know anything about genre writing except for like Game of Thrones, which is not a fair assessment of, of the, you know, <laughs> of the true depth of the genre at all. Um, I mean, I write about dark stuff that's like real, like the darkness of real life. And um, I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, to give an example, I when I was working on my second book, which is about the life and death of my son at a very young age of terminal illness, which is pretty dark and shitty. Um, you know, the, the, the editorially, if you looked at the narrative, people were like, "Well, you need to end this story with his death," and I was like, um, "No, I'm not doing that. Like, I that's a place I'm not ready to go. I want him to be alive in the book when it ends. It's really important to me that he's alive in the book when it ends." Um, and at the time, I was very resistant to writing about his death at all, and of course, have since done so. So for me, it was just basically about like, you know, what can I actually put on the page that isn't going to make me lose my mind, um, and what do I actually have to say about that experience that's that's beyond just some kind of keen or howl. Like I, I, I was telling my class today that when people talk about work, especially nonfiction, is like raw and like brutally honest, it like really annoys me because I don't really think that's a compliment. I mean, I think it's a marketing compliment, but I don't want my stuff to be seen as raw. I want it to be seen as a shaped story or meaning made of something that is, you know, ostensibly meaningless. And, um, and along those lines is, you know, the difference between writing for therapy and writing for catharsis. So if you're writing for therapy, I mean, I love therapy. And I think the, the end goal, I mean, not that we're ever going to meet it, is like, you know, I love myself, I have high self-esteem, and life is good. And like, it's some kind of wholeness, right? Whether or not we get there, that's the, that's the star we're shooting for. That's not what writing is about. Like, if it is, then it's wrong. I mean, I don't feel good when I'm writing. I don't feel, you know, people are always like, oh, don't you feel better after you wrote about your son's death? And I'm like, no, dude, he's dead. Like, no, I don't feel better. I feel awful about it. So I think I, that whole kind of, especially with nonfiction, like writing is not therapy. It's a different enterprise, um, the different end goal and a different process. If it helps you manage something, that's one thing. But it's not like it's not sitting across from somebody who's been trained to like try to make you like live your life without being homicidal or suicidal. It's just a different thing. Yeah. Kim. I just wanted to comment that I, I've been reading the confessional poets and I was reading about how Anne Sexton actually was trying to talk about that difference between therapy and art, yeah. in fact, and that just because she maybe got over daddy issues in one poem doesn't mean that everything's sunshine and lollipops in real life, you know. It is this journey that keeps going and going. Natalie Goldberg talks about composting, like how the same ideas work through us in our work over and over again. Yeah, Tol- to- uh, Tolkien used the same kind of metaphor with of composting, except he, com- he, he, um, he compared all of our life experiences to the leaf mold uh, at, the, in the fo- at, uh, you know, at the bottom of, you know, on the floor of a forest. Um, but uh, we did, we can't, and, and like uh, Emily was saying, um, we can't write while the leaves are still in the trees. We have to wait 
until they have fallen and into that compost and worked for a while. Yeah. And um, and and another thing that came that came to me while while you were uh, describing your experience writing about your son um, is that one of the ways for us to take readers where we want them to go is that we have to go there first. So you're describing, you know, like you are reliving these experiences and talking about them. And, and, and if you're doing it in a visceral, visceral way, it's, it's likely very honest. Um, but that doesn't mean it's fun. Um, or that you feel good while you're doing it or that you feel good afterwards, but it's there. And now you have this piece of art, right? So, I mean, I have to say like, and I hope I never have this experience again. When I was writing that book, I felt like a an insane person. Like I literally was having some kind of psychic break. Artistically, that was awesome. As a person, it sucked. Um, and I never want to experience that again. I don't care. I mean, it, it was scary. But, you know, was that where I needed to go? Yes. But, I mean, I was exhausted and miserable. So <laughs> that was not therapeutic. But sure, yes, I agree with what you said. Yeah. Kim, anything? No? Okay. All right. All right. Um, you, you were just listening, listening very thoughtfully, and I'm like, okay, well. I was wondering if there was a unicorn in those woods walking around. I don't know. Just... There's one right there. Um, I mean, I write a lot of horror myself, so um, again, you have to go there. And uh, and the nonfiction side is often worse than anything we as generally sane, creative people can create. Um, uh, I mean, we you have to we have to put ourselves into the thoughts of monsters, uh, break taboos, um, <laughs> indulge in some seriously bad taste occasionally. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, but isn't that, I mean, I'm speaking a little through my non-existent hat also because I don't know much about horror, but wouldn't you consider that that's all just, that's a metaphor for life? I mean, we create these monsters, but what we're really doing is creating a metaphor for the the monstrous reality that we are confronting on some level, whatever that is, like the Le Guin story, mm -hmm. which I haven't read, but sounds amazing. And that idea of, you know, the what we build our contentment on or our happiness on and that we can all recognize ways that we do that and are doing that, especially as privileged most predominantly white Americans in this culture, you know, we can we can locate that little child at the bottom of the, you know, as fantastical as it sounds. It's not fantastical. It's a, it's an image for what we apprehend of reality. I, I mean, would you say oh, that it's the same thing with horror? Absolutely. That that's what really what's going on there? Absolutely. The, the, the essence of horror is not the nature of, it's not whether you've got a, a vampire or a werewolf or a serial killer in mm -hmm. your story. It's about the peeling away of the facade then uh, to reveal that we sort of live on the surface of what we think is normal everyday niceness, right? Where everything is safe and everyone's okay and blah, blah, blah. And, in, and when that facade is ripped away, that is where the horror story comes from. And whatever the nature of what's under there, you know, that's where, you know, the vampires and the werewolves come in. But um, it's still all about the, the, the revealing of the true reality, Right. Um, and we sort of, I think we, and you all touched on this in, during the first question you were, when we were talking about um, uh, why we do this um, uh, to sort of show what the world really is, right? Um, so, 
Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, I mean, the vampire is in itself a metaphor, right? We all know psychic vampires. We've all had our energy taken by another person. I was also thinking, how many people have read Stephen King's On Writing? Yeah. Amazing book, right? And so he talks about how he was, when he was writing The Shining, that he was actually battling alcoholism, you know? And so the spirits, the haunting, the whole metaphor for what he was personally going through. A lot of times, I don't think we notice the emotional truths that go into our own writing until maybe later on. Um, or we go into that psychotic break space, you know? And that happens with fiction as well. I tried to process my mother's death over and over again, you know, with another character that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so uh, here uh, I read a quote uh, some years ago um, that has stuck with me. It's by uh, uh, Japanese film director uh, Akira Kurosawa. I'm a huge fan of his, but uh, uh, he said that the role of the artist is to not look away. Uh, so how do you think this relates to what we're talking about here with, with uh, darkness and, and, and to your own work? And we'll start with Sarah this time. Well, the first thing that I thought about is I remember I must have been three or four years old and I had gone to the grocery store with my parents one night and we had walked there and we were coming back with groceries and um, it was in Boulder, and somebody had hit a pregnant elk, and it was literally like that first, you know, that, that need to look at an accident when you pass by it, and they were trying to save the baby elk, the mother had died, and they did manage to rescue the elk, um, the baby, not the mother, And I think my parents sort of lost track of the fact that I was as young as I was and that I was watching this um, C-section, which is really interesting now that I think about it because sort of the catalyst for the mother's schizophrenia and her breakdown was an emergency C-section. So that was a weird epiphany to make, but... You know, I do think that there are some people who can't look directly at the accident. There's some of us that look at the accident for the wrong reasons, and then there's some of us who bear witness. Yeah, Yeah, I think that the witness thing is really important. So, I mean, I definitely felt that when I was writing about my son, that they were, you know, the, the sort of the prognosis of his illness was so grim and just so horrifying, and I, it was just, like, unbelievable that those diseases still exist. And I decided early on, like, I would not, I think, it, I mean, not avert my eyes, which I think that just same film director says. I was just not, not because I didn't want to, because I did, but because I felt that it was about, that was, my, that was what was being asked of me. And I, and I think that happens a lot in all kinds of different genres. Like, um, a, a lot of medical narratives, for example, um, um, stories written by doctors or people who are patients is about, you know, sort of going towards the truth of whatever it is is, is happening to them and not not packaging it in a way that's palatable so much as packaging it in a way that's truthful. And I think readers really respond to that more than they do to any kind of, like, sprinkling sugar on something. Like, they want to see people go to those places, in in fact, because we know that we'll all be in a similar place. Like, they're all mortal. So it has, I think it has to do with, with, you know, something as sort of epic as mortality, (laughs) right? Um, Yeah, so I I think it's... um, I think it's important that we live in a culture where people are very shielded in, in many ways from death, and that's not true of many cultures. And so it's in some ways, 
um, the conversation about not averting one's eyes, it's a choice to, that we get to make. Many people don't get to make it at all. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that, that is a, I think that's, that's part of being an artist. And you know when someone writes something, I mean, I feel this when workshop and they're not really looking at the thing. They're looking like around the thing or they don't want to see the thing and whatever the thing might be. And the reader knows it too. And is, is you know, kind of cheated as a result, right? So that's like what we owe our readers is to, to be right in the midst of it. It's satisfying because it's human. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I would agree with all that. I think it is part of the artist's job description. I mean, there are many writers who have said it in various forms. Colette said, look hard at what you love and harder at what you don't love. Someone else said, you know, to be a writer, be someone in whom, whom nothing is lost. You know, meaning that you look at everything. I think that's part of our job is to look and to report back. Um, whether the readers want it or not, you can look at how well literature sells compared to certain other things. So you can, you can talk about what culture we live in and how those things float out into the world. But I think ultimately, you know, why is, why is writing something people turn to in extreme moments? You know, why are poems, for example, that are largely ignored by the culture, the thing that people turn to in times of greatest, you know, greatest celebration as well as greatest loss? Because they know there's some truth there that you don't find in other places. And so people, I think, instinctively go there when they, when, when they, the necessity is there. So that, that happens too. Um, but yeah, I think it's just our job, and you know, hopefully there's some people with whom it resonates. I think there are a lot of people with whom it doesn't resonate, and that's the other issue. You know, I I, um, I published a piece recently in the Times about my mother's death, my mother's decline, and um, I made the mistake of reading the reader comments. No, <laughs> so I will do never. That. I know, I know, but I didn't know it was my Cut first time. Yeah. I was like, ah. New York Times, ah, I'm going to read all the comments, you know. And it's like, oh, my God, oh, no, yeah. help, no, no, no. I felt like sort of just bombarded by these blows by people saying, how could she treat her mother that way? If it were my mother, I would never say those things about her. And I was just, and I was so, you know, it was illuminating. <laughs> to use a light so word. You call me and I'll tell but, you not to do that. Yeah, I know. Just now I know. Now I know. I won't ever again. But but what's interesting to me about that experience is really seeing how many people did not want. They didn't want to hear that she had sweaters stained with drool or that, you know, we were getting depends on her before something happened. You know, they didn't want to hear it. They were like, your mother, my mother was a somewhat public figure. She was a tennis champion. And they were like, your mother would, would have hated that you wrote that. Let her legacy alone. She was a great athlete. And look how you've done a disservice to her. I was like, well, but it was my mother. And I, it's my story. And what do you do? You know? but, but it was amazing how many people were actually upset about that. And I think that holds true across all of this, where someone's not going to buy a book of literary nonfiction about a, a child dying because they'll say that's depressing I don't want to read about that yeah, you know I mean as opposed to that can tell me something about life and about loss and about parenthood and about love for a child and all the things that I'm sure your book does you know but but there are a lot of people that just are already walled off and are not going to hear that I think that's very true but I, and I will say this is kind of like ancillary but in terms of like the comments online and the way that people like lose their manners like coins <laughs> rolling out of like holy pockets like what who are these people like that's one thing I will say if you do write darkness um, 
or you know, and hopefully you do, if you publish something online, just don't engage with any of the comments, right? I mean, I have a friend who's a writer. Her name's Rachel Dewaskin, and when I was I don't know what I was. I was getting all in a snit about something they had written online. She's like, listen, I'm telling you right now. Never read anything that's written about you online. Don't Google yourself. Don't read reviews. And I, have, and, and I was like, oh, my God, I could do that. I don't have to get myself into, like, my panties in a twist every time someone says something disparaging about me and doesn't love me. And she's like, yeah. In fact, you know, grow up. So, um, and, and, and uh, listen, not that, that I'm, I'm not saying that you were being childish, but I'm, it, there's such a, you, we, and speaking of darkness, we want to know kind of, like, what people are saying. Yeah. But I will say, if you write darkness, like, you've done your job. You put it out. You put it in the world. Who cares what people think? In in, in essence, it doesn't really matter. And it just makes you feel badly or outraged or I don't know. So that was something that it was really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And it's still hard for me to do, but I've I've trained myself. I have, like, a shock collar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then you have to market your book. I mean, I I did some weird, like, speed dating thing at Mountains and Plains, and I'm about to have to do it at the ALA conference in San Francisco. So this time it'll be librarians, but last time it was booksellers. So you have to go to... It's like five minutes at each table, and there's five booksellers at each one, and there's like ten tables, and you have to pitch your book to them, right? And so I'm, you know, schizophrenic mom, you know, really, really depressing, goes on for 13 years, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're just all dead, you know, like they're, they just hate me already. And... So I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's like a whole nother darkness—the darkness of being a writer and being published. Well, you know, people don't like their beliefs challenged, right? They get they get grump they they get grumpy when you wake them up. Um, you know, they get uncomfortable if they see something of themselves in your monsters, right? Um, and um, th- which and there, there's a great quote from, by the Marquis de Sade: um, e- "Evil recognizes evil, right? Evil recognizes evil, uh, and recognition is always painful, right? So I thought the quote was, you know, bend over, you bitch." Or something. <laughs> That was, was the next paragraph. The expert. That was the next paragraph. What you were going to quote from yeah. the Marquis de Sade? Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's where I that's 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 my world. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and another thing, uh, uh, while we, well, we've been talking about whether or not we should go there, right? Uh, and you, I, th- I think you've all touched on this. Um, if you're writing about uh, darkness and conflict, you're, you're often writing about violence. Um, you're writing about pain. You're about about the infliction of pain, uh, the fear of pain, the sensation of it, the aftermath of it. Um, and we so we all have pain in our lives, right? So if we look away from it, that's the height of dishonesty, right? Uh, so don't do that to your reader, right? Um, so, but I think I'll just um, jump in. I think Sarah has a comment, but that's along the lines of engineering lightness, like Toni Morrison, because we also need that in order to to survive. We need a certain amount of denial in in order to survive, and a certain ability to let that stuff be what it is and find joy anyway, right? That's the other side of it, so. I think mostly I'm curious about the compulsion, like what does compel writers to write what they write. Um, I was reading, I'd gotten a letter from somebody about my book and they were essentially asking me like how I could have possibly been in such a dark place for as long as I was when I was writing the book, which was, you know, three or four years and 
as if it was a choice. I think that was what seemed the most interesting to me, but I had never really stopped to think about it from just like a reader's point of view, somebody who doesn't necessarily write. I couldn't get Fig's voice out of my head. It was there every morning that I woke up. It was there when I took a bath. It was there when I was driving. She, it was, it, the only thing that I can really describe it as is being a medium and hearing, I don't know where these characters come from, but they just start talking. And it all came from some um, line that I had heard somewhere, some sort of overheard conversation. And one line, every day is a near-death experience. And that is what sparked the entire book, the entire character, um, the whole plot line. And so, again, it's that bearing witness that somehow I picked up that line somewhere in the world, and then it gave birth to this character that I couldn't ignore. I, you know, I don't know what I would have done. I would have gone crazy had I ignored her. Okay, well, it's about uh, a little past quarter to nine, so I think it's time to open it up for some uh, questions and a- questions from uh, our audience. Uh, you can answer, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. I was struck by what you said about this really has to be for the reader. And so there's a threshold of how much do you look at the thing and what sort of strat- strategies do you employ. In we wrap. I'm reading Poster Child mm-hmm. right now. Uh-oh. Yeah, and uh, her Rap's first novel, or first memoir. Also sad. Very sad, but there's a strategy employed. I love this kid. This is an irrepressible kid, and uh, while she's going on about her irrepressible life, it's heartbreaking for Mm -hmm. us reading the parents, or or imagining the parents' sort of emotional state. Uh Um, Can you talk about... uh, whether that was a conscious strategy. Also, there's a second part of this question. Last year's workshop, you talked about C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, where there was, it gave freedom intellectually to readers, and then his sort of shadow piece, The Grief Observed, that was just basically disgorging emotions on the page, two completely polar opposite pieces. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about the value of each in terms of yeah, I mean, we'll see us lose a special case, right? Because that dude was like, you know, British, um, <laughs> from from a different generation, and also, you know, very controlled, a born again Christian, complicated dude. Um, when he wrote a grief observed, he wrote it as a journal. He wrote it under a pen name, and he was like completely freaked out that like anyone would ever read it because it's basically him running around his garden, like rubbing his face in the dirt, freaking out, looking for his wife in people's faces, and he was losing a shit, right? Which is why it's so great. It's 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 sort of animated by the engine of illogical. Why did this happen to me? And he's cursing God, and he's like questioning. It's peppered with questions, and then it kind of ends where he sort of forgives God, which is I thought I thought a slightly sat- unsatisfying ending, but whatever. Um, I, but I think there's basically no strategy in that book, I feel like. I mean, he published it because he was C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, I don't know if anyone would have... I mean, all the students that I assign it to mostly hate it, but whatever. I think it's great. Um, and that just could be my mindset at the time. I, I do think it's a raw portrayal, raw, in the sense that... But it's also very shaped. I mean, they, he did edit it somewhat. So it's a journal, but it's a shaped journal. So it's sort of like watching the process that's not the Kubler-Ross sort of... Um, bogus uh you know stages of grief or whatever in terms of strategy and employing strategy in 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 the in my first book i mean i i think um 
No, I had no strategy. Um, I, I think, you know... Get it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, the good thing about writing that book was that, unlike a lot of memoirs, I don't have, like, a crappy childhood because my parents were crappy. Um, my parents are great. And so it was fun to animate them as sort of like... It was like, for me, it was like the portrait of a, of a you know, less dysfunctional American family than some. Like, it was just, like, full, like, full of love and, like, acceptance. Um you know, my mom still thinks my dad looks better in the book, which is irritating to me that she says that. But, I mean, and, and it's true. Like, my parents are very much a part of my life. It's, like, not a dysfunctional situation. So that was a relief to write in contrast to this sort of, like, person who's struggling with all of these body issues or what have you. Um, so, so, yeah. I mean, I think that strategy was more about just kind of trying to render the truth of, of a childhood that was at one point full of physical pain but also full of the kinds of things that we're supposed to provide for our children, which is love and 100% acceptance. Um, and, you know, whatever you get in the genetic wash is what you get, right? Which came in useful later for me <laughs> in tenfold. But I think that's, yeah, I mean, so strategy, and also it's been like a lot of time since I wrote that book. But um, I just think it's a, tr- I tried to tell the truth, basically, a, a narrative truth, right? Um, which I would distinguish from an objective truth. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I tried. I'd like to make just a comment. I was thinking a little bit about, you were talking about how, you know, you have to look at the thing and not at things around it. To some extent, though, I do think that you have to look at outside the frame as well, which I know is not what you meant. Um, But I was thinking a little bit, um, Celia Satterstrom, a local author, talks about how she tried to write the suicide of her grandfather and what it was like to find his body and she kept trying to like write his body and what he looked like and she found that she was actually failing at the truth the entire time but once she described the couch and the wallpaper all of a sudden um, and I think to some extent there's moments of light that come through and maybe looking outside of the frame a little bit I completely agree with that. I mean, I just collaborated on a book with a woman whose husband died very young, and he was writing a book when he died, and she's writing, like, rewriting his book, right? And and she, when we met, she was saying that the last, the two years that he had this um, horrible cancer and died of it at the age of 38, she said it was the worst part of my life and the most joyous part of my life because it was full of meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the truth about all the dark stuff, right? Is that you do, f- the moments of lightness are what are also the meaning. Like it's not just one, th- it's both and, not either or. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that's definitely true. Like profundity doesn't come through a simplistic ex- understanding or experience of the world. It comes through all those things colliding. That's a great way to put it. Um, uh, all right. Um, any other, anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Uh, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a question for Kim, but um, if there's other people on the panel that can speak to it, I want to know about it. So, um, how did the blues start, and how does it relate to your writing? And I hope we get to hear some of the you know, I have something on my notes here that says blues, and it's in a little box there. And I did write, I started writing down titles of blues songs, like Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, um, Black Night is Falling. Uh, you know, there's, there's, so much of, there's so much darkness in all of those ways. I mean, that's what the blues is about. So, And I think, um, I, I actually wrote a quote down from James Baldwin from the end of Sonny's Blues that I thought was kind of great that, that said what 
what I might say, except he said it better. So let me see if I can read it here. For... Wait a minute. For while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. There, oh shit, this is so small. I don't have my glasses on either. There isn't any other tale to tell. <laughs> wait for it, wait for it. The only light we've got in all this darkness. So I think telling the story, telling the story of the, you know, I mean, the blues actually, you know, has both black and white origins in terms of its roots, but a lot of it obviously came from African traditions and how those came to America and got sort of mixed in with what was happening with, um, you know, the ways that those strands were interpenetrating at the time you know and i again it's it's about it's about people sort of singing their sorrow and that being a part of it so i think that you know the blues as a the blues as a form and the blues as a tradition is something that's obviously that has attracted me as a poet and as a um a student of blues harmonica so um i i think that's very much that and other music has been a big influence on my writing yeah, so I guess that's what I would say about that. I don't know if you guys have something to add about anything, blues or uh, music. I'm, I'm or, a huge blues fan myself. Yeah. Um, and it, because blues is about the the most visceral moments we experience, like heartbreak, you know, your lover left, or there's someone you want who doesn't love you. And, I mean, that's about as sharp as pain, as, as emotional pain gets outside of death. Uh, and um, so... You know, if I'm, I, I use that. Uh, if I'm writing, um, so I'm sort of like bleak, uh, bleak scene or or chapter or something like that. I'll put on some blues music, and um, it'll take you there. And and the the weird dichotomy is, is that it's also some of the sexiest stuff there is, right? I mean, you're listening to 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 heartbreak and and pain to blues harmonica and slide guitar. And people start dancing to this, and it's the flip side, right? It is all sensuality. So, I mean, I think that there's another James Baldwin quote, which I don't know verbatim, but he talks about how you think you're alone in your pain and your suffering, and then you read <laughs> or you listen to music, yeah. right? I think it's him that says that, and it's this—it's like the, exactly that, right? Mm-hmm. You think you're alone, and that's 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 where this kind of work is a service to other people. Is that it's like you think you're all alone, and then you realize you're not, and that's mm-hmm. joyful. So there's some. I think that element of sensuality with the blues speaks to that. Like, wow, someone else is experiencing this too. Like, I, you know, that's joyful. I think sure. too with just that the lightness and the darkness. I mean, the other thing besides for blues and sex, sort of going along, sex and violence. I mean, you know, babies get born at higher rates when we're at war, when we are concerned about our mortality, right? Um, so there is that they they are interlinked in that type of way. There is really no way to separate the two, and you know, not to be totally cheesy, but you know, how do you know that something's dark unless you see? The light. No, totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Do you feel that men and women appreciate different kinds of darkness? I guess I'd have to remember my past life as a man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think that we have universal. 
you know, I was talking to my class today um, about Third Mind, the collective unconscious. I did a Jungian writing journey with them. Um, and, you know, this one guy was saying that the structure that he had was just a cabin that he once saw. And he didn't understand that of all the structures that he's seen in his entire life, he decided to choose this particular structure to put into his Jungian journey. And, of course, the structure is supposed to represent your childhood, right? And so, you know, some people have, like like a, a house without windows or doors that you can't get in and out of or I've seen really interesting but he didn't quite understand that it was still his psyche putting it in there I know that I'm completely straying from the gender question but um, I think the main thing like sure you know Sylvia Plath really obsessed with the moon and the tide and you know there's a lot to be said about the moon and the tide and menstrual cycles and what the female body does do but I would you know probably branch out to say that transgendered transsexuals probably you know everybody has their own unique shadow self um, and then we have our universal shadow self as well that's hard. I mean, I think it's for me, I, what, what immediately comes to mind is, is somewhat of a, obviously a generalization about the ways in which men and women form relationships different as a sort of general rule. And I, again, not to be sort of reductive and prescriptive, but I mean, I know for me at least, um, all of the relationships I have with like my closest women friends are just as important to me. I hope he's not here. Is the relationship I have with my husband, right? Who I deeply love, right? I mean, I, I would be as devastated if they died as if he did. Um, and his relationships with, with, with men are not like sustaining in that same way. Like they do things together and they like make fun of each other and then like show up at events and look fucked up, which is, you know, useful. It's they show up. <laughs> Um, but they don't, the quality of, not, I don't want to say the quality, but the, the, it's, um, it's just a different kind of connection. So, so yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, um, you know, and I don't want to make, make stereotypes, but I definitely feel like, you know, when my husband was reading my second book, like when we were first getting together, he was like, you know, sometimes I have to like put it aside. And I was like, whatever, you know, like, whereas meanwhile, <laughs> like my girlfriends who read it were just like, you know, read it in a sitting. I, I just think, and it's not to say one is better or worse. It's just, I do think that, that it has to do with the way that, um, we find relationship or the way that we're taught to find relationships. I think a lot of those ways that we cultivate relationships as men and women, it's a taught thing. It's not necessarily like our natural, you know, habitat. Right. Yeah, that and, was what I was going to say. I mean, gender to a, a, a large degree, I do believe is a social construct, Exactly. but social construct is storytelling. And so there is, you know, like we were reading Raymond Carver in my creative writing class today and, and we read Hills Like White Elephants, you know, and it's pretty, you know, the girl and the man. I mean, come on, you know, why can't we call her a woman? But the thing is, is that for that purpose, it needs to be the girl and the man. Um, and for whatever Raymond Carver's dysfunctional alcoholic couples, there needs he you know he's just this cheating man or whatever. And so we do need to be honest to the social constructs of gender and the shadow self. But that said, you know. I like to teach the rules so that you can learn how to break them. So know what the social constructs are so that you can then start to fuck with people's minds yes. and, and change yeah. the story. Subversion. Exactly. Subversion, subversion from the inside. Subversion is the key, right? yeah. Yeah, subversion is from the inside. So absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, then. Well, that's it, then. Any closing comments? No. All right. We've already... 
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.